Hello, this is Jason Flanksbid from Beecher Carlson, and you're listening to the Global Captive Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by the Legacy Management Specialists RNQ and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. Don't forget to find and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram and do subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify or your podcast app of choice to get independent expert insights every two weeks. This week, sat to my right in the guest co-host chair, is none other than Beecher Carlson's Jason Flaxbeard, while later in the pod we will be hearing from Luxembourg-based Bertrand Gilson, Guernsey domiciled Dominic Wheatley, and Arizona natives Anjanette Fowler. But Jason, it is not often I get to see that slicked back hair of yours here on Fenchurch Street, London. Welcome to the pod. Uh, it's nice to be home, mate. It's, uh, it's, it's beautifully sunny outside and uh, we're stuck in a, a windowless room here. It's terrific. <laughs> yeah, the Global Captive podcast studios have yet to be updated. But for those not familiar with Mr. Flaxbeard, do not let the cool English accent fool you. This man is truly embedded in the North American captive market, overseeing a significant captive consultancy and captive management operation with offices across the United States and in offshore jurisdictions, Bermuda and the Cayman Islands. Jason, your practice manages some of the largest, I think, a good handful of Fortune 25 clients and a good number of Fortune 500 clients and really sophisticated and interesting captives. What brings you uh, to London this week? Well, it's, um, it's not just the weather and the interior rooms. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a placement of the reinsurance on one of our Fortune 25 uh, captives. It's, we're placing some, uh, some reinsurance behind the captive on a global integrated basis in a, in a way that is efficient, compliant across the globe, and, and, and I, th- I think groundbreaking. It's, it's, it's something that maybe two or three the other Fortune 25 companies have done. Uh, the reinsurance market is starting to, to come around to our sense of, uh, sense of viewing the, the, the future of the world. Uh, the future of the world, by the way, is, is captives. It's reinsurance and captives. I think the insurance companies themselves will will see captives not as a threat anymore, but a way to uh, to expand their portfolio as as compliance officers and, and compliance um, uh, controllers. Um, and the reinsurance world, uh, whether it be traditional reinsurers that we have in the marketplace right now, or hedge funds, or pension funds, or whoever might be providing capital, will become become more and more and more important. I know you can't go into too much detail on on numbers or the client, but. We're talking big numbers here, aren't we? We're talking significant size reinsurance, multi-line, multi-year programs. Very much so, very much so. The, the way that we look at um, the purchase of reinsurance behind captives is that uh, every company has uh, a portfolio of risk and to buy insurance on a line-by-line basis does not allow companies to actually see that portfolio effect manage the way that they look at risk. So if you've got workers' compensation and you've got property and you've got general liability coverages. If you have a loss in comp, it doesn't naturally mean that you're going to get a loss in, in property. It doesn't naturally mean you get a GL or a fiduciary loss. So the fact that you, you can actually look at those as, as an, on an integrated basis allows you to say 1 plus 1 plus 1 doesn't equal 3. It might equal 2.5. Yeah. And by a little bit less insurance, but on a more efficient and more controlled basis. A more efficient use of capital, I presume, as That's well. That's right. Honestly, the, uh, the, the efficient use of capital is, is a key uh, barometer for for the success of these programs. And when we pitch this to risk managers, this automatically goes up to treasurers because you talk about return on investment, you're talking about uh, ability to uh, to receive a payback from reducing the, the insurance that you buy, and you're looking for a return on investment for the, the, the definition of your, uh, your your captive. Treasurers always want that, so it's that's that's, that's something that's cool on this front. Um, this is the, episode two, mate. I'm, I'm delighted you got here. Uh, <laughs> I did listen to episode one. The difficult uh, second yeah, episode. Yeah, the difficult second episode. 
uh, what were the growing pains that you saw after the first week? Um, it's been pretty good, actually. It's been pretty positive. Lots of buzz on LinkedIn, and we're primarily going to promote this through LinkedIn because that is, you know, the captive market is actually pretty active on, on that network. Kieran and Carl Lehman and Emma went down really well in the first episode. It was a good, a good balance of guests, and we're going to hopefully, you know, cover some obvious issues. Things like cyber were mentioned, solvency 2 were mentioned. But, you know, this episode we're going to come on to in a second regarding investments. I want to kind of cover some topics which are not the obvious core topics of the captive world. Let's talk a little bit around the edges as well. So this week we have a pretty crammed show. Our captive owner interview is with Bertrand Gilson, the Chief Investment Officer for Builders Insurance Holdings. And carrying on the investments theme, we will also be hearing from Anjanet Fowler of Madison Scottsdale Insurance Asset Managers, who I spoke to while in Tucson, Arizona. But first, we hear from Dominic Wheatley, formerly the head of the Willis Guernsey Captive Management Office, and today Chief Executive of We Are Guernsey, the promotional body for the domicile. Dom took the opportunity to explain how the British government has so upset its offshore crown dependencies in recent weeks on the topic of transparency and beneficial ownership. This is a fairly hastily arranged interview. So to briefly can set the context for our listeners, the UK Parliament, through an amendment made to the government's financial services bill, was due to vote on forcing public beneficial ownership registers on the Crown dependencies of Guernsey, Jersey and the Isle of Man. The government did stop the bill from going to a vote on 4th of March, but it is unlikely we have heard the end of this and it has been a running theme for a number of years. Our listeners will likely know that Guernsey and the Isle of Man are both significant captive domiciles. Guernsey is the largest in Europe with around 300 captives and international insurers and another 500 plus cells. It is heavily utilised by UK PLCs for their captives but also by corporations all over the world. Correct me if I'm wrong but Guernsey and the other Crown dependencies already do have a beneficial ownership register or registers between them which are shared with UK government and other relevant authorities. Is that right? That's absolutely correct Richard. We have for many years recognised that in order to have a sustainable business model as a specialist finance centre, you need to be fully compliant uh, with international standards with regard to regulation and indeed tax transparency and, and tax good practice and of course areas such as anti-money laundering. And as part of our process of, of upgrading up, uh, our levels of transparency, we put in place a uh, central register of beneficial ownership of all structures that were located within Guernsey and indeed managed in Guernsey. And that register has been in place now for some time and it is available on a timely basis to relevant authorities. It is also verified uh, and uh, scrutinised, verified in real time uh, and is subject to effective regulatory oversight. Um, but what is it about the proposal to have public registers uh, that has angered the Crown dependencies? Well, I think what, what has upset us is, is really two things. First of all, that there is a failure on the part of those involved to understand and appreciate the very significant steps that we have taken uh, to be a part of the solution in this area, as I outlined before. Um, there is no evidence that, that the public scrutiny of beneficial ownership registers adds in any way to their effectiveness uh, as a, a means of improving 
transparency on tax affairs, uh, although obviously it does pander to the voracious appetite of the media uh, for salacious stories about high-profile individuals. The second thing is that we really feel that for good reasons there, there is a, a right to privacy included within human rights law internationally, uh, and that we don't see a good reason here to transgress that right uh, simply because uh, Parliament, uh, a certain number of parliamentarians think they should. And then finally, uh, what those involved in this, uh, these amendments are ignoring is the very significant issues to do with our constitutional relationship with the United Kingdom, uh, which has survived for 800 years on the basis of, um, of our relationship with the Crown. Crown dependencies... Uh, and in general, and, and Guernsey in particular, have never been a subject to rule from Parliament. And the, the effect of uh, allowing Parliament to impose in this way would be actually to, for, for the UK Parliament to subsume Guernsey into the UK in a way which really is, has not been agreed by the people of Guernsey and is quite honestly um, anti-democratic. So other than the publication of SFCR reports under Solvency 2 in European Union jurisdictions, so just to bring our, our listeners up to speed, if you are a captive or any insurance company in the European Union, of which Guernsey is not a part, then you must publish an annual solvency and financial condition report, which would actually outline the parent of that insurer. But outside of the European Union, in, to my knowledge at least, Vermont is the only captive domicile in the world which proactively publishes the owners of all its captives. Would you be concerned that if Guernsey and the Isle of Man were to be forced down the public register route, they would become less appealing as captive domiciles, either to new or existing captive owners? Well, it's difficult to say that, but no, I don't believe so. I don't think, I think there are areas of financial services that pertain to private wealth and particularly um, the, the assets and, and situation of high profile and high net worth individuals where there is a risk of kidnap uh, and where there is an intrusive media. Uh, but I think in the case of captives, my defining definition of captives being where assets, the owner of the capital, is the same as the owner of the risk. I don't see any significant reason why um, captive owners would be particularly sensitive about the disclosure of the ownership of a captive. So I, I wouldn't have thought it would be of huge, um, of huge significance to captive owners. So, Jason, full disclosure, I actually do think more transparency in the captive world would be no bad thing and might actually help us to shape the old tax avoidance stains from the industry for good, which I think, you know, whether or not people believe there is a problem, there's a perception, I think, sometimes still by outsiders that there is a problem. This is true, and um, the problem used to always be around tax. It's historically been seen as a, uh, as, as, as a tax play in the captive industry, and, and that, that's just not true. Uh, risk management is, uh, especially in these days when data is more, more available and, and more analytically probable, shall we say, uh, you can take a look at data and, and, and chop it many different ways, which allows captives to actually do so many more diff different and diverse things that, that are nothing to do with tax whatsoever. You know, it's a hangover from the fact the major capture centres happen to be offshore jurisdictions, and there was a reason for that. 
40, 50 years ago. But what's since happened, from my understanding, is that all the expertise in accounting and just the regulatory expertise of understanding what a captive is has built up in those centres, which is why people still choose to be there. I, I agree. Um, and capital efficiency offshore is often a, a little bit better than onshore. Uh, if you look at Bermuda, the Cayman Islands and other such jurisdictions, you find that their ability to allow business to flow through their uh, their vehicles is is more capital efficient. Um, but the uh, the other thing about the, the offshore jurisdictions is the captives are regulated over there as insurance companies rather than just captives. So you can write third-party business. You can assume business from entities that are outside of your corporate group, whereas in the U.S., most of the capture jurisdictions will allow you to write uh, contractually affiliated business only. And the other new, more nuanced solution to this problem, if it is a problem, we are seeing in Guernsey definitely more UK PLC-owned captives elect to be taxed as a UK company. And yeah. I'm, I'm sure you're seeing that in the US with the likes of Bermuda as well. Well, Bermuda is, uh, you can make an election called a 953D election, which uh, for insurance companies allows them to be taxed as a US entity. And most of my captives in Bermuda actually make those elections. So it's, it's, it really isn't about tax anymore, fellow. It's, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's, and, and this beneficial ownership thing, it's, uh, I tend to agree somewhat with Dominic. I, I think it's uh, disclosure of beneficial ownership is fine. I just don't want to be disclosing what exactly a captive writes. I don't want asset mix or liability mix or underwriting guidelines being publicly available. Who owns a captive? I don't think it really matters. Most of the captives I have, they're, they're named after their parent company anyway. Yeah, or they're not particularly subtle. I think I remember breaking a story a few years ago that the SpaceX captive was called Final Frontier Insurance Company, LLC. Um, So you could take a guess it was at least in the kind of space area and then it narrows it down pretty quickly. The Global Captive Podcast is supported by R&Q, the award-winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. R&Q can provide a wide range of solutions and has A-rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to R&Q. Hi, this is Courtney Claflin from the University of California, and you're listening to the Global Captive Podcast. Welcome back to episode two of the Global Captive Podcast, where I am joined by Beecher Carlson's Jason Flaxbeard. Jason, if you could characterize your clients' attitudes towards asset management in three words, what would it be? For me, three C's. Capital, which is capital efficiency, control, and compliance. Those are the three words that, uh, that define the way that our companies are looking at it, with, with capital being the most important one. They want to be globally compliant in a capital-efficient manner. But it's not, it's not top of their list, is it? When, they, when they're thinking about their captive, is it true that asset management is often an afterthought? Asset management absolutely is. Most of the captives we deal with are all about liability management. It's what populates a captive. The premium goes in and it's supposed to be paying for the losses that you're going to accrue in there. Um, and uh, a lot of companies do loan their money back to the parent. The reason why is because it's a centralization of a treasury function at the parent. If you look at some large entities, uh, why, why hire a different manager when you can, when you can squeeze your current manager for the same fee? Well, one person who is all about investments is Bertrand Gilson, Chief Investment Officer for the Luxembourg Domiciled Builders Insurance Holdings. 
Builders is owned by German construction company Hochtief and utilizes both reinsurance and direct writing vehicles, some would call them captives, some would not call them captives, as well as in several investment funds to squeeze every bit of value out of their insurance operation. Monsieur Gilson discussed his approach and philosophy on asset management, but began by providing a bit of background on the builder's project. So we need to go back 20 years ago. My group is a, is, is a construction group, and therefore you know, building skyscrapers uh, cost a lot of uh, money. And... Um, they started to think about uh, increasing their self-retention and uh, they came across a long thinking process but they created their own captive here in uh, in Luxembourg close to the uh, German headquarters so it was total sense to do to do that way but we evolved with years uh, and became more a reinsurer instead of being a captive and it started first with the fact that we were reinsurance subcontractors and then per se, so legally we became a reinsurer. And then uh, the ideas came out uh, about why don't we increase the third-party business as a diversifier of our risk portfolio. And that was making total sense. Today we are more a reinsurance group and I think it's 2011 we created our own insurance company because uh, we were then needing to access some specific niche market. We are really interested in that uh, because we wish to select our own risk, uh, meaning that we are not in the auto liabilities and things like that. We we really accessing a niche market on properties and damage and general uh, liabilities. So the captive really has evolved quite quickly at Builders, hasn't it? It started off as, as a traditional captive, but you've, as you said, you've picked up third-party business, which you are quite selective of. But at its heart, the Builders, re, it still does reinsure group risks as well from the parents, just in addition to third-party? Yes, we still do that. I mean, it's uh, 70% of our turnover. So, uh, And this is also our policy to keep that at least to the minimum of 70% of our turnover. So just to emphasize, uh, Bertrand, you are Chief Investment Officer of the Builders Insurance Group, so not just CIO of a captive, but it's still very a unique role, I think, from something that came out of the captive model. Can you explain the rationale behind your role as a CIO of a captive or reinsurer and its purpose? Yes, for the sake of history, actually, Builders Insurance Holdings is, is more a profit center. And therefore, we participate to the PL of the group quite sufficiently. And the investment part in DPNL is uh, between 25 and 40%. So it makes sense when you pile up all those uh, results that we did in 20 years, it's very, very large. And my participation in the PNL of our group is really large also. As the assets of the company are very interesting and important and large, we have built up a strategic asset allocation and we invest in a fairly large uh, amount of asset classes. It starts with cash, but it ends with alternative investment and um, when you start to be as complex as that you need to have someone monitoring all the assets and setting them all the governance and all those kind of aspects and when it comes to managing the assets you need to understand how it is done Um, you need to understand all the partners you work with and uh, as we created our own specialized investment fund it needs to be properly managed. What is the benefits of the captive having its own investment strategy rather than sending its cash 
back to the parent group, which we see so often. And you've just come out of a roundtable uh, from a captive review event discussing exactly that, you know, how captives should manage their assets and what they can be doing with those assets. Well, that's, <laughs> that's interesting, but it is also a, a fairly difficult question because I met with, with several captives and actually they are more aligned with cash. They have bonds and cash, but nothing else than that. And actually, a lot of them are sending the cash back to, uh, to their own group. I think uh, it is due to the uh, influence of the parent company, for sure, but also it is due to the, shall I say, the, l the lack of knowledge of the enterprise risk manager or, or, or the risk manager. Who, but not only. I think uh, what they do, and it depends on the size of uh, small captives, they only do their technical business, insurance, and that's it. They are not focusing on, on the investment side and they prefer to leave it to the group. When the captive is, is bigger, then I think uh, it, it starts to be really interesting to diversify it. What I should say also is with years, I see a lot of regulators saying, yeah, you need to decrease a little bit the, the part that you send to the group. I think that sending cash to the group or having a loan with your own group makes sense. But having that kind of diversification, the fact that we, uh, that we manage our own assets, for, for me, my personal point of view, is that we participate to the PNL, and that, that, that is very important. We, that's the most important metric by which the group sees us is our PNL, the PNL that we post. So in the last five years, I have seen a lot of asset managers ranging from small niche insurance asset specialists to the big high street banks show a lot of interest in targeting and serving the captive market. But the majority of them will often give up trying after a couple of years to serve captives because it is so hard to get the group to give up the money. Are you surprised more captives do not play a more proactive role on investments? Well, yes and no. Well, let's talk about the influence of the group. And it depends on the, of the size of the captive, really. Also, solvency to bringing in some needs of governance, showing that the captive and the captive manager and the enterprise risk manager are, are really knowledgeable about investment. So I'm, I'm not surprised because um, actually 80% of the market is small captives. And these captives are really not interested to have investments. It's more close to cash management than deposits because they have claims in front of them. They have liabilities in front of, or in front of them. And they need to have secured and uh, liquid stuff uh, to, to face that. So uh, I'm not surprised, actually, that, that a lot of asset managers sometimes give up because they, they have no leverage or persuasion at, at group level. Because actually it is what the group seeks is just a device that, that manage their own liabilities. They, they don't want to see a device that manage also the assets. They are just focused on covers and insurance stuff and not on assets. I'm not, I'm not surprised about that. Also that investment is not in the toolbox of the enterprise risk manager. And that's, for me, a very important driver, because if the enterprise risk manager has that in the toolbox, then he can convince, he can talk about that, and he can set up some workforce or task force or an investment committee 
that that is more needed in uh, any way uh, nowadays. But um, it's a, it's a question of influence the parent itself and not being influenced by the parent. But I fully understand that most of the groups do not like to see that. It's just a captive that manages covers and manages the self-retention. And that's it. Uh, you mentioned Solvency 2. And there were some thoughts that once Solvency 2 came in, it would encourage more control over captive assets and a reduction on intercompany loans. From what you hear, has that happened at all, do you think? Has Solvency 2 pushed captive owners to think more seriously about the assets and liabilities in their captive and how they manage them? They do think seriously about that. But on the other side, I don't see too much impact of it. For what I saw this morning, <laughs> a lot of captives are more aligned with cash in their portfolio uh, and probably a little bit of bonds, but don't have a large variety of, of uh, asset classes. The only issue is just not having the cash in the same bank. But they also need to understand that Solvency 2 is asking for more governance and more knowledge. You need, the captive needs to prove itself that it is understand what uh, the risk on the asset is and that they are really responsible for that and that they, they disclose it and that they are organized in a proper way. So I think that's a new need, of course. But again, it will depend on the size of the captive. BEPS and the OECD's papers on BEPS talk a lot about intercompany transfers and being more uh, scrutinizing further those transactions between subsidiaries. Of course, a loan back to a parent from a captive would come under that bracket. I don't think there is um, a big impact on the investment strategy itself, but actually because of BEPS, there have been quite a lot of um, of repatriation of, of assets. That is interesting. It shows that somehow those regulations are more prone to have those captives managing their own asset and to set up their own governance, which I think is very, very interesting. And that is needed to be. But BEPS has no real impact on the strategy itself. It's just that it brings back the responsibility back to the captive. Just lastly, Bertrand, I think we've touched a bit on this already, but what will help encourage captive owners to take a more proactive, insurance-tailored investment strategy? You first need to convince your, your group CFO, right? So how, how do you convince them? Uh, first of all, you need to be knowledgeable. So you need to increase your knowledge. And you may need also some advisors or non-exec uh, directors in your board. So for me, one of the drivers is certainly the size of the company. Uh, you don't want to lose time if the size of the company is too small. And regulations uh, are also a very big driver uh, because it drives the need to set up something to have a good governance. But how do you convince your CFO just to show that actually you can participate to a better PNL? One of the ideas behind, behind that is the fact that the investment, what we do, brings very interesting gearing option of the PNL. That is a, a good hint for, for a CFO. Go to him and say, yeah, you know what? We have a solution to gear the PNL. Then you make a point. Jason, I think you, you've come across Bertrand uh, through your travels and probably his boss, John Morey, who received the Outstanding Contribution Award from Captive Review a few years ago. Uh, they oversee the builders group of companies. It is quite a unique and sophisticated structure, isn't it? It is, actually. I, I do know John. I was there that night that he won the award, and I know Bertrand uh, pretty well. He's a terrific fellow and uh, very enjoyable to be around and just a nice guy. Uh, but it is it, it is a unique uh, it is a unique structure and and, and they, they deal with it well and what I like about those guys as well is, is is they're open for business 
they're always looking for different ways and different uh, mechanisms to, to plug their captive into to the benefit of their owner, which I, I think is a, a, the mark of a truly great uh, mature captive. Our next guest is Anjanette Fowler, Managing Director of Madison Scottsdale's Insurance Asset Managers. I spoke to Anjanette in Tucson, Arizona at the Seeker International Conference and she had listened to Bertrand Gilson's interview with me regarding his investment strategy. She told me a bit about Madison Scottsdale and the general attitude towards investment strategies in the United States. Our division focuses solely on uh, overseeing investments for insurance companies, in particular captives. Uh, represents about 50% of our uh, assets under management. And so we're, we're quite knowledgeable in the nuances of uh, managing for captives versus traditional uh, lines insurers. And have been doing that since 1993. And you're uh, primarily in uh, U.S. domiciles? Uh, actually, both. We have uh, primarily U.S. domiciles, but we do have some, some offshore captives as well and, and pretty active in the Bermuda market in particular. Um, so you had a chance to listen to Bertrand uh, Gilson's interview. Considering your experience in the North American captive market, how unique do you find that very hands-on approach to asset management from the captive itself? I think it is quite unique, actually, as it relates specifically to investments. Um, we tend to be the, the last people on the radar screen for uh, how that piece of the puzzle fits into the, the entire equation. But I do think that we're seeing changes, particularly on the offshore captive model, where it tends to be really, in our experience, more of a, a cash, as Bertrand alluded to, or just kind of a, a more of a passive approach, either at the, the company, parent company level, where it's just the treasury department managing those funds, uh, very, very disconnected from the actual yeah. liability streams. And so onshore, I think they're a little bit further along on U.S. domestic onshore captives, but it is, it's unique to be able to I think actually get to the captive owner and and have that opportunity to, to demonstrate where you can add value to the, to the bottom line. But how much does the approach then vary to asset management among captive owners, do you think, in the United States? It really does run the gamut. You know, to Bertrand's point, it, I think where you find it, the barriers to entry in terms of really actively managing the investment portfolio does tend to evolve with size of the captive. And, and when they start to actually see the captive as its own profit center, as he alluded to, and big dollars accumulating there in the way of a surplus of reserves, it, it starts to get more attention. And that's that's where it's easier for us to make that argument in case for a more active approach. Uh, the smaller ones, although I will say in the last few years, as the Fed here domestically has started to unwind their easy money policy, we've seen rates rise enough to where the opportunity costs are growing of being in a more passive money market approach. Uh, and I think, you know, we're able to much easier make a case for actually managing those investments in a more customized fashion that matches the structure and liability of the captive itself versus the parent company. So how do you explain to prospective clients the benefits of having an insurance-focused asset management plan rather than just it being another part of the treasury, of the cash that treasury, treasury looks after? That is a challenging question for sure, <laughs> but the, the easy answer is when you can quantify it in dollars... What's dropping to the bottom line is, is one, one of the components to that. But it's really educating uh, the captive manager themselves. So the, the intermediaries, if we give them enough ammunition to allow us or allow them to educate their boards or the risk manager and that gatekeeper, if you will, and bottom line quantify what the opportunity costs are, we find that it's been much easier to allow us to get in front of the board 
uh, the risk manager and say, hey, here's here are the strategic benefits of going from a very passive approach to actually managing this to your liability streams and your uh, liquidity needs, um, still factoring in some nuances because there's always those risks that the parent's going to see that piggy bank growing over there and and, and tap that in the way of a, a loan or a dividend. You've touched on it a little bit, I think, but do you see captive owners becoming more aware and mature on the topic of investments? Is, is the message starting to filter through, do you think, or do you still face the same traditional obstacles? I think we're at the beginning stages of that. You know, it certainly helped that given that most insurers are primarily invested in fixed income, the movement in rates here in the U.S. has certainly helped, although they're still historically low, the dollars are, are bigger and the percentage moves are, are much larger. So you can actually quantify those those dollars and, and it definitely gives them pause and quantifies how, how much they can add to the bottom line and eventually grow that surplus. And it's it's that fine line of, you know, a lot of captives don't necessarily want to, to grow surplus and reserves and keep it at the captive level. They're really just wanting it to function for that pure insurance risk and scrape the gravy, so to speak, if of what excess uh, capital is there, which is, you know, can be a challenge. Um, And we certainly, I think with our custom approaches, that is a big thing that we want to make sure we are able to connect with the the risk managers uh, or the uh, the parent and understand what those potential liquidity needs are or what the philosophy of the company is uh, to make sure we provide that liquidity and a customized strategy. So, Jason, how has your first experience of being on a podcast been for you? You know, I've never been on one of these, never even been on the radio. It's, it, um, I, I think it's terrific. I, I like what you're doing for the industry. I, I think this is great visionary leap for, for captive and, and the, the way that you look at captives is, is terrific as well. Uh, but as, uh, as we've gone through this, I've realized you might not ask me back. Maybe invite Pete or Matt <laughs> on from Beecher Castle in the future. Get some Vermont or Hawaii perspective or, or one of your clients. I'm, I'm, you've got a lot of very good clients that I've got good relationships with and look forward to speaking to some of those in the future. Well, thank you for joining me for episode two and thank you to all of this week's guests. Please do not forget to follow our LinkedIn page and make sure you subscribe to the Global Captive Podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify or your podcast app of choice. <laughs>